Allie woke up afraid, rolling over and reaching for the lamp beside her bed. She moved so quickly that she almost tumbled right over the edge of the bed. She clicked on the lamp and got rid of the darkness that permeated her room. She scanned for intruders, saw none, then took a deep breath. She couldn't even remember what she had been dreaming about. Not exactly. There was a figure standing over her bed, but she couldn't make out any details in the dark. She could see that the figure held menace in its physicality and this caused her to jerk out of her sleep. That was all she could remember. She tried to concentrate and recall more of the dream, but she couldn't. Then something came into her head. A word. A name. Vaptu. Allie shuddered. Had she heard the name in her dream? She wasn't sure. The name was somehow familiar to her, but she was sure she had never heard it before. She glanced around her bedroom again, still not convinced that she was alone. Vaptu. What kind of name is that? She asked herself. Sounds foreign, that's for sure. Allie shuddered again. Something about the name. It glared at her like an omen. She couldn't explain to herself why the feeling of dread persisted. It was just a name, after all, and just a dream. Still, she couldn't shake the feeling. Allie looked over at the clock on her bedside table and saw that it was 4.36 in the morning, she pulled the covers back onto herself and went back to sleep, but she left the light on. In the morning, with daylight filtering in through the window, Allie woke again. The first thing to enter her mind was the name, Vaptu. Her eyes opened wide, casting all the weariness of the morning off her face. The feeling of dread from the night before crept back into her, and she realized that the sunlight wasn't enough to make her feel safe. What a dream, she thought. Allie, like most people, was given to the occasional nightmare, but she had never had a problem shaking off the eerie afterfeeling they caused. This time was different. She sat up in bed and glanced around her bedroom. No one here but me. Snap out of it, she thought. She rolled out of bed and walked across the room to where she kept her clothes in a pile near the window. She pulled on a pair of jeans, buttoned them up, and walked down the short hallway of her apartment to the kitchen. In the kitchen, she surveyed everything with cautious eyes, not knowing what to expect. Expecting to see old Vaptu, maybe? What's wrong with you? she asked herself. She sighed and began to make herself some breakfast. Later that day, Allie sat and sketched out the splash page for the new issue of her comic book, Silk and Steel. The book was about a group of beautiful and deadly ninja women who cleaned Yakuza from the streets of Tokyo with a particularly lethal brand of justice. The book was a major hit and was simultaneously making her a pile of money and making her name one of the most repeated names in the industry. She was writing the books too, which was a first for her, and the feeling of finally being in charge of her own project was exhilarating. The fact that she was rapidly becoming a big name and the holder of a big bank account wasn't too bad either. She had been in the greatest of moods for months now, ever since the publishers had called to tell her how fast the first issue had sold out of every comic shop in the Southeast. A few days later, they called to tell her how fast the issue had disappeared from comic shops in New York and Los Angeles as well, 
and after that, she knew it was on. So now, she sat in her beautiful and comfortable apartment in Savannah, which overlooked the Atlantic Ocean, and she happily sketched the splash page for the new issue. When she felt she was finished with the sketch, she popped the pencil into her mouth and sat back in her chair to observe her work. It was good. A nice sense of furtive movement, a street thick with shadows, a glimpse of steel just here, and a glimpse of a beautiful and curvy body just there. You're a badass, Allie. You just are, she thought, and laughed out loud. Quite satisfied, she reached over and grabbed her bong from its place beside the drawing table and pulled her lighter from her pocket. She lit the bowl, took a long pull, and held it in. As she held the smoke in her lungs, she looked around the room at the various posters she had hanging on the walls. There were a few Frank Frazetta prints, and her eyes landed on a fearsome painting of Dracula that Frazetta had done. Again, the name jumped into her head. Or crept into her head. Vap too. She blew out the smoke with a sigh of frustration. She hadn't thought about Vaptu since that morning and was actually beginning to put the last night's nightmare into the category she called shit you can't remember. Now the feeling of dread she had felt earlier was back on her in full force. She looked around her drawing room to make sure she was alone. Of course you're alone, she thought. Silly bitch, she said aloud. She brought the bong back up to her mouth and was about to get another big hit when her phone rang. She put the bong down and reached over and grabbed her phone from her desk. Hello? She said, her voice tinged with just the tiniest hint of upset. Hiya, Allison, said the pleasant Yankee on the other end. It was Dennis Kingsley, the talent manager for Cutting Edge Comics, the independent publishers that put out Silk and Steel. Hey, Dennis. What's up? She asked him. Got some good news for you, he said. Allie could practically see his cheesy smile. Oh, yeah? I like that, she said. Me too, he laughed. So, Dark Horse called, and they want you to contribute a story to an anthology about ninjas they're putting out next year. Frank Miller is on board, and so is Matt Wagner. No shit, Allie nearly screamed. Frank Miller and Matt Wagner? I know, too bad we aren't the ones putting it out. But it'll be great, you betcha, Dennis laughed again. So you want to do it? He knew the answer. Of course I do. I almost pissed myself when you said those words. When do they need it? She asked. By November. They want to have the book out in January. Just eight pages. Shouldn't be hard for you. Dennis answered. Nah, I can do eight pages in my sleep. I... She started, but talking about sleep made her think of Vaptu again. She paused. You okay? Dennis asked. Ah, yeah. Just stoned. And I had a killer nightmare last night. It just sort of came back to me just now. In fact, it's been eating at me all day, Allie answered. Ah, uh, you'll forget it eventually. You're good at that, staying so stoned and all. Dennis laughed again. Allie laughed too. You're one to talk. If I recall correctly, last time I was in New York, you had some waiting on me when I arrived. And as I recall, you smoked some of it with me. Hey, that's our little secret, he said, defensive. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. Goddamn closet smoker. She had already forgotten about Vaptu again. So I'll set everything up for you, and that's that, Dennis said. Cool. Thanks, Dennis. I'm freaking out about this. For real, she said. I know. Frank Miller, Matt Wagner, and you. It's going to be one hell of a ninja book, that's for sure. Talk to you soon, he said. Yep, and tell him I'm getting killer stuff done for the new issue. Maybe my best splash page yet, she said. Sounds great. I'll tell him. Bye, Allison. Bye, Dennis. She put the phone back down on the desk and gave out a giddy laugh. Woohoo! Go, baby, go, she said out loud. Allie reached for the bong again, and as she did, she heard a noise from the back of the apartment where her bedroom was. It sounded like a blanket being dragged across the carpet. Or a cape. She looked at the Frisetta painting of Dracula again, and her skin broke out in goosebumps. She got up from her chair and headed over to the katana that hung on the wall, just between two paintings by the Hildebrandt brothers. She pulled the katana down and drew it from its scabbard. Holding the sword made her feel a lot better, like she was on top of things. A bitch with a katana is a bitch not to be fucked with. Allie walked back to her room, holding the sword in front of her with her best warrior stance. In her room, she immediately saw what had made the noise. Her blanket was lying on the floor. It must have fallen off the bed, causing the noise that had put her on edge. Her eyes narrowed, and she scanned her room. Seeing that nothing else was out of place, and that nothing was lurking in the room, she sighed, and let the sword point drop down to rest on the carpet. Fuck you, Vaptu. I've got a katana. Folded still, too. The real shit. Straight from Japan. Don't fuck with me, or I'll fuck with you, she said to the empty room. It made her feel better. She headed back down the hall into the kitchen and made herself some dinner, with the katana lying on the kitchen counter just within reach. After dinner, she decided to do a drawing of Vaptu. She figured that maybe since she couldn't shake the name out of her mind, that it was a good name for her character. Something that sticks with you like that should make for good reading, she figured. So, Vaptu, what do you look like? She wondered as she sat down at her desk. Instantly, the vague image she had in her dream came back to her. He was tall and cloaked. Maybe a hood, too. He, huh, she thought. I guess it does sound like a man's name. She started sketching, and after about ten minutes, she had a nice image going. Ooh, she said looking at the sketch, a chill going down her spine. You're a creepy fucker, Vaptu, she said to the drawing. The figure on the paper was tall and thin, a great figure wrapped in a black cloak like the classic Grim Reaper image. A gaunt, pale face peered out from the hood. The face was cold and knowing, with an evil leer which just barely revealed the tips of needle-sharp teeth. One of Vaptu's eyebrows was raised, indicating that he knew something that Allie didn't know. She had thought that drawing the damn thing would make her feel better, maybe put her at ease, but it actually had that opposite effect, and now it was bedtime. Damn it, she said, and closed the sketchbook, blocking Vaptu from her sight. She walked into the kitchen, grabbed a roll of cookie dough from the fridge, and tucked it into the waistband of her jeans. On her way to her bedroom, she grabbed her bong. Once in her bedroom, she realized that something was missing, so she walked back down the hall to the drawing room to grab the katana. 
At the open doorway to her drawing room, she reached in to cut on the light in. Was that movement? Something ducking behind her desk? She flipped the light switch and saw nothing out of place in the room. She walked over to the desk and grabbed her katana from where it was leaning. There was nothing hiding behind the desk. At the doorway, she paused, then flipped the light off again and looked through the big window in the drawing room at the dark sea out there. Plenty of boats out there in the dark. She probably just saw movement from a light on a boat, that's all. Back in her bedroom, she got undressed and leaned the katana against her bedside table. She put on a movie, American Ninja 2. She had seen it a hundred times and figured it would at least put her in the kind of mood that might allow sleep. She stretched out under the covers, smoked some weed, ate some cookie dough, and watched Michael Dudikoff and Steve James kick ninja ass. Soon, she was asleep. A loud noise snatched Allie awake. It sounded like something had broken and shattered violently. She could feel the pieces of it showering on her bed. She reached for the lamp as fast as she could and turned it on, filling the dark bedroom with light. For a second, her eyes burned from the scorching light, and she could see only fuzz. And then everything came into focus. She saw that her katana was gone. She turned her attention to her room then and was frozen in place by what she saw. A small figure was hovering above her head, holding her katana, which was now broken into pieces. The thing couldn't have been more than three feet tall. He was floating just a few feet above her. He was wrapped in a small black cloak with the hood drawn back from his head. His little head was wrinkly and as white as a corpse. He had long pointed ears that stretched out six or eight inches from his head. His hooked nose was also extremely long, stretching out from his face as far as his ears did. One of his bushy little gray eyebrows was raised and his bleak white eyes stared out like a dead shark. His filthy teeth were long and deadly sharp, and his thin black lips were drawn back in an evil grin. There was a smell, like hot chrome and rot. Hey, Vaptu, Allie said breathlessly. Hello, Allison, Vaptu said. I thought you'd be taller, Allie said letting out a little chuckle as Vaptu dropped the broken pieces of the katana onto her blanket and came down toward her, his claws outstretched and his black mouth wide open.
I was Denier with a track called Closed Gate. And y'all filthy motherfuckers know me. It's your main man, Riggy Goddamn Mortis, cranking the sounds of pure evil into them ears from right here at Lurkin Studios. I've dug up a few friends to spend the night with here in the booth, and let me tell you, it's getting ripe in here. But y'all know I like them silent types. Holla at your boy! Heather Melton of the Lurking News, here to report that someone or something has been delivering mysterious Polaroid pictures to people everywhere. We have not received anything here at Lurkin Studios, but we are getting reports that these pictures are causing disturbances in the community at large. Be careful out there, listeners. The sun had set. The great shadows came striding over the forest. In the weird twilight of a late summer day, I saw the path ahead glide on among the mighty trees and disappear. And I shuddered and glanced fearfully over my shoulder. Miles behind lay the nearest village. Miles ahead, the next. I looked to left and to right as I strode on. And Anon I looked behind me. And Anon I stopped short, grasping my rapier as a breaking twig betokened the goings-on of some small beast. Or was it a beast? But the path led on, and I followed, because, forsooth, I had naught else to do. As I went, I bethought me. My own thoughts will rout me if I be not aware. What is there in this forest except perhaps the creatures that roam it, deer and the like? Tush the foolish legends of those villagers! And so I went, and the twilight faded into dusk. Stars began to blink, and the leaves of the trees murmured in the faint breeze. And then I stopped short, my sword leaping to my hand, for just ahead, around a curve of the path, someone was singing. The words I could not distinguish, but the accent was very strange, almost barbaric. I stepped behind a great tree, and the cold sweat beaded my forehead. Then the singer came in sight, a tall, thin man, vague in the twilight. I shrugged my shoulders. A man I did not fear. I sprang out, my point raised. Stand! He showed no surprise. I prithee, handle thy blade with care, friend, he said. Somewhat ashamed, I lowered my sword. I am new to this forest, I quoth apologetically. I heard of bandits. I crave pardon. Where lies the road to Villefer? Cobbler, you missed it, he answered. You should have branched off to the right some distance back. I am going there myself. If you may abide my company, I will direct you. I hesitated, yet why should I hesitate? Why, certainly. My name is de Monteur, of Normandy. And I am Carolus Lelou. No. I started back. He looked at me in astonishment. Pardon, said I. The name is strange. Does not Lou mean wolf? My family were always great hunters, he answered. He did not offer his hand. 
You will pardon my staring, said I as we walked down the path, but I can hardly see your face in the dusk. I sensed that he was laughing, though he made no sound. It is little to look upon, he answered. I stepped closer, and then leapt away, my hair bristling. A mask, I exclaimed. Why do you wear a mask, monsieur? It is a vow, he exclaimed. In fleeing a pack of hounds, I vowed that if I escaped, I would wear a mask for a certain time. Hounds, monsieur. Wolves, uh, I said wolves, he answered quickly. We walked in silence for a while, and then my companion said, I am surprised that you walk these woods by night. Few people come these ways, even in the day. I am in haste to reach the border, I answered. A treaty has been signed with the English, and the Duke of Burgundy should know of it. The people at the village sought to dissuade me. They spoke of a, a wolf that was purported to roam these woods. Here the path branches to Villefer, said he, and I saw a narrow, crooked path that I had not seen when I passed it before. It led in amid the darkness of the trees. I shuddered. You wish to return to the village? No, I exclaimed. No, no, lead on. So narrow was the path that we walked single file, he leading. I looked well at him. He was taller, much taller than I, and thin, weary. He was dressed in a costume that smacked of Spain. A long rapier swung at his hip. He walked with long, easy strides noiselessly. Then he began to talk of travel and adventure. He spoke of many lands and seas he had seen, and many strange things. So we talked and went farther and farther into the forest. I presumed that he was French, and yet he had a very strange accent. that was neither French nor Spanish nor English, not like any language I'd ever heard. Some words he slurred strangely and some he could not pronounce at all. This path is often used, is it? I asked. Not by many, he answered, and laughed silently. I shuddered. It was very dark, and the leaves whispered together among the branches. A fiend haunts this forest, I said. So the peasants say, he answered. But I have roamed it oft and have never seen his face. Then he began to speak of strange creatures of darkness, and the moon rose and shadows glided among the trees. He looked up at the moon. Haste, said he. We must reach our destination before the moon reaches her zenith. We hurried along the trail. They say that a werewolf haunts these woodlands, said I. It might be, said he, and we argued much upon the subject. The old women say that if a werewolf is slain while a wolf, then he is slain. But if he is slain as a man, then his half-soul will haunt his slayer forever. But haste thee, the moon nears her zenith. We came into a small moonlit glade, and the stranger stopped. Let us pause a while, said he. Nay, let us be gone, I urged. I like not this place. He laughed without sound. <laughs> Why, 
said he. This is a fair glade, as good as a banquet hall it is, and many times have I feasted here. <laughs> Look ye, I will show you a dance. And then he began bounding here and there, anon flinging back his head and laughing silently. Thought I, the man is mad. As he danced his weird dance, I looked about me. The trail went not on, but stopped in the glade. Come, said I, we must go on. Do you not smell the rank, hairy scent that hovers about the glade? Wolves den here. Perhaps they are about us and are gliding upon us even now. He dropped upon all fours, bounded higher than my head, and came toward me with a strange, slinking motion. That dance is called the Dance of the Wolf, said he, and my hair bristled. Keep off! I stepped back, and with a screech that set the echo shuddering, he leaped for me. And though a sword hung at his belt, he did not draw it. My rapier was half out when he grasped my arm and flung me headlong. I dragged him with me and we struck the ground together. Wrenching a hand free, I jerked off the mask. A shriek of horror broke from my lips. Beast eyes glittered beneath that mask. White fangs flashed in the moonlight. The face was that of a wolf. In an instant, those fangs were at my throat. Taloned hands tore the sword from my grasp. I beat at that horrible face with my clenched fists, but his jaws were fastened on my shoulders. His talons tore at my throat. Then I was on my back. The world was fading. Blindly I struck out. My hand dropped, then closed automatically about the hilt of my dagger, which I had been unable to get at. I drew and stabbed. A terrible half-bestial bellowing screech, then I reeled to my feet, free. At my feet lay the werewolf. I stooped, raised the dagger, then paused, looked up. The moon hovered close to her zenith. If I slew the thing as a man, its frightful spirit would haunt me forever. I sat down, waiting. The thing watched me with flaming wolf eyes. The long, weary limbs seemed to shrink, to crook. Hair seemed to grow upon them. Fearing madness, I snatched up the thing's own sword and hacked it to pieces. Then I flung the sword away and fled.
I don't know about you, but life is busy nowadays. Between work, family, and friends, I don't have a lot of time for meal prep and cooking. I want my kids and I to eat wholesome, nutritious, responsibly sourced meals. But I'm a single dad, and I don't always have the time to do that myself. That's why I'm so glad to have found Red Apron. Red Apron is a meal delivery service that brings freshly prepared food right to your door, ready to serve and eat. What sets Red Apron apart from the other meal delivery services is not only their extensive menu, but their unique, devotion-based exchange system. At Red Apron, they believe that no family should be denied a delicious meal, and as such, they do not accept traditional currency in exchange for their service. Instead, Red Apron merely asks that once every turn of the moon, you provide the address and name of an enemy that lives within 100 miles of your home. No further information required. I don't know about you, but I've got plenty of enemies nowadays, and at a rate of one a month, I figure I have meals covered for my kids and I for the next... Who knows? I may never cook again. And these meals are really something special. Always fresh, with choice, delicious cuts of meat unlike any I've ever tasted before. If you happen to have any vegetarians or vegans in your home, and nowadays who doesn't? Two of my three daughters are. You'll find that Red Apron's faux meat products rival the taste and texture of any others on the market. In fact, I served my dad one of Red Apron's beef-style veggie burgers, and he couldn't tell the difference. These things even bleed when you cook them. Another thing that sets Red Apron apart from the other guys is their dedication to bringing style and sophistication to every meal delivery. Red Apron's meals are delivered to your door on ornate, sigilized, covered platters by silent, hooded women in pristine white robes. My neighbors give me such looks when Red Apron comes by, even now after three months of deliveries. So I'm not sure what you're waiting for. Visit redapron.com to set up your meal plan today. Red Apron, your family will love you and your enemies will fear you. Heather Melton of the Lurking News, here to report that we have received one of the mysterious Polaroids here at Lurking Studios. Listeners, the woman in the photo is beautiful. She is more than a woman. She is a god. Listeners, it sounds like the disturbances have begun here at the station. I love you. You're everything to me. I would do anything for you. Grady whispered these words, spent and breathless, and then he flung the strangled cat against the wall as hard as he could. The cat bounced back with a hideous thump and plopped onto the crusty, stained carpet below. It was not subtle. None of this had ever been subtle. It had not slowly and insidiously crept in on him. When he saw her, it happened. Grady had walked home from work, down Sackett Street, past the Lucky 13 Saloon, as usual. He stopped in for a Brooklyn-priced beer or two and listened to a few typo tracks on the jukebox before heading home. He ran into Mr. Adeyemi in front of the apartment. Are you still coming over for Misa on Saturday, Grady? The old man asked. Wouldn't miss it for anything. Is Saba still making Buna? Grady replied. By the gallon, please come, the old man implored, as if he actually thought Grady would ever miss a free meal or an offer of Miss Adeyemi's Buna. I'll be there, Grady said, 
and let himself into the building. Unlocking his door and walking into his apartment, something caught his eye, down near his feet. He looked down and saw a Polaroid on the floor. Someone must have slipped it under his door. He set his bag down and picked up the Polaroid. And there she was. A full-length shot of a woman sitting in a featureless corner with her shapely legs stretched out toward the camera, which was near ground level. The image was badly pixelated, which gave the whole thing an eerie haze. It looked like it was shot on an old webcam. It didn't look like a Polaroid at all. The girl's cold and unreadable expression was further confounded by the pixelation. Her face, framed by long dreadlocks, seemed to hold Grady in absolute contempt. It was as if she were making it clear that he had no business whatsoever looking at her, not even a poorly captured image of her, such as this. Grady could not look away. He realized that maybe he should be considering where this thing came from, who put it under his door, and why. But there he was, just sitting and staring at it. In fact, he had not taken his eyes off it since he saw it. He couldn't quite put his finger on it, but something wasn't right about the photo. The lights seemed to come from impossible angles, and the soft focus and pixelation just added to the feeling of unreality. The quality of the image was so strange, like maybe someone took a Polaroid of the original digital photo. Grady realized he had been staring at the photo for almost ten minutes. It was a work of art, an achievement in aesthetic and composition that would make any design nerd drool. And it was so damn unusual looking. The light was coming from the wrong angle. There was a shadow on the girl's face that could only be cast if a bright light was just behind her, low and facing the camera. But there was no light source there in frame. Then there was the dull shine on her legs, like sunlight streaming in through a dusty window was putting a glow on her. But the rest of the frame was so dark. And she kept looking, like, You wish you knew, don't you? You wish. But she wasn't telling. She wasn't saying anything. She was ice cold, cooler than cool. She was the queen of everything, and he was garbage. She was God, and he was Grady. He would make her see. He would prove his worth. He would summon up such a love that she could never deny it. What do you get the woman who has everything? At first, he thought to get her literally everything. Tear reality screaming from its roots and hand it over to her. But as soon as he thought this, he realized how stupid it was. She already has everything. Stupid? Think. Aha. Uh -huh. The first one he brought in was a pigeon that very night. He found it out on the sidewalk, hobbling around on a broken leg. People were walking right past it, either pretending not to see it or pretending not to care, or hell, maybe even actually not caring. He scooped it up and brought it inside his apartment. He sat it in front of the photo of her and believed. Wanted. As he offered up to her everything that was him, he squeezed the life out of the pigeon and gave her that as well. He squeezed it so hard his fingers punched right through the bird and into its bony chest. All the blood in its tiny body poured out over Grady's fingers and hands and then started running down his wrists. He took a breath realizing that he desperately needed one. He felt a thrumming sensation throughout his entire body. It was hard for him to sit still. It was better than sex. Much better. 
He tossed the bird onto the carpet and stared hard at the photo of the girl. She still didn't care. He still did. He didn't go back to work. He spent his days and nights hunting in the city. Over the next five days, he killed more than a dozen animals. Cats, dogs, rats, birds, whatever he could get. He snuck them all into the apartment in a duffel bag. On the fifth day, he brought her a boy, probably thirteen years old. Some junky kid he found in the park and lured back to his place with an offer of cash. No one would miss him. When Grady choked the life out of the kid, he let out an animalistic cry that was completely unfamiliar to him. He had never heard himself make such a noise, and wouldn't have even thought himself capable. He looked at the girl in the photo, which was now hanging on his living room wall. Was she smiling? Just the tiniest hint of a grin? A small smile of satisfaction? Maybe. Maybe. Grady tossed the kid onto the pile and left the apartment in search of more life. It was starting to stink in there. In the moonlit alley behind Grady's apartment, he found a homeless man knifing a dog. The old man looked up at him from the dingy shadows, and their eyes locked for a moment. In an instant, Grady knew. This old man knew about her. This one is mine. Hers, the old man said. The dog in his arms was twitching and moaning low, bleeding to death. How can I do it better? What does she want? Grady asked the old man. Fuck you, the old man said. He stood up and maneuvered the dog under his large and ratty coat, then started to walk away. Grady reached out and grabbed the old man's shoulder. Wait a second, Grady said. The old man spun around fast, like a snake changing direction for a strike. I said fuck off. Put your hands on me again, boy, and I'll bite them off and give them to her. If I hadn't already gone through the trouble of catching this goddamn dog, I would have cut you up as soon as I saw you. Now fuck off. Grady drew back and let the old man hobble off down the alleyway, trying to hide the dead and bleeding dog under his coat. Grady followed the old man, staying as far back as he could while the old man took a meandering path through the back alleys. How did the old man know? Had he seen the Polaroid? Were there others? Copies? Other angles? Had this old fucker seen more than him? When the old man slipped into an abandoned warehouse a few blocks away, Grady went in after him. The place was huge and open and dark on the inside. It stank. Grady tried to sneak up on the old man quickly, but as he got closer in the gloom of the warehouse, the old man heard him and spun around with his knife in hand, dropping the dead dog to the concrete underfoot. Grady lunged and wrestled with the old man for the knife. The old guy was strong, but malnourished and probably past sixty, and Grady quickly began to gain the upper hand. Up close, the guy smelled horrendous. It was more than just street filth. He had a layer of decay on him as well. Grady elbowed the old man in the stomach, then snatched the knife from the old man's bloody hands and buried it in his throat. The old man lurched forward onto his hands and knees, and Grady heard kneecaps crack as they hit concrete. The old man jerked the knife out of his throat and let out a terrible, bubbly growl that was probably meant to be a scream. Grady took a few steps backward and watched the old man flounder about on the concrete, bleeding to death. When the old man finally died, Grady rummaged through his dirty, stinking pockets. 
In one pocket, he found a street address scrawled on the back of a discarded receipt. The name Sarah was also written on the paper. In another pocket, he found a crusty old Polaroid. It was her, and it was a slightly different angle. Not by much, but just a little. The camera was a little higher now, and there was definitely the beginning of a smile at the corners of her mouth. The address on the receipt wasn't far, so Grady set off for the place immediately. The walk took him past his apartment. He saw Mr. Adiemi parking his car on the street, done with his Uber shift. Grady met eyes with the old man, and he could see that Mr. Adiemi was shocked and concerned at his appearance. He kept walking. Grady! Are you all right, man? Where you been? The old man called out as he got out of his car. Grady didn't answer. He just kept walking. Mr. Adiemi was behind him now. Grady! His neighbor called out again. Grady kept walking. He couldn't be near Mr. Adiemi, couldn't bear the thought of the old man seeing his face. He was sure that everything he had done for the past five days would be plain to see. Mr. Adiemi would know exactly what he was. The thought shamed Grady so much that his reaction was violent. He saw, he knew, I could turn around, go back to the apartment, and kill him. Then I wouldn't have to think about what he saw on my face. Grady clenched his teeth and forced himself to keep moving forward, toward the address on the receipt. He made it about another eight steps before he wheeled around and headed back to his apartment. He walked in the door then up the stairs to the second floor. On the way up the stairs, he did some calculating. If I go inside, I'll have to kill both of them. Maybe I should ask him to come back to my place to talk. He decided to knock on the door and ask Mr. Adiemi to come over to his place. Easier to deal with there, and he wouldn't have to worry about Mrs. Adiemi. Grady stepped out of the stairwell and into the second floor hall and saw Mr. Adiemi. The old man was standing in the open doorway to his apartment, staring down at something in his hand. Grady stepped closer and saw that it was a Polaroid. Her. Sarah. Mr. Adiemi turned around and looked at Grady, and the old man was crying. His tears dropped onto the Polaroid with little audible plops. Grady stopped where he was. Oh God, oh God, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, Grady said. Mr. Adiemi looked back down at the Polaroid, eyes full of tears, and sank down to the floor. Grady ran, back into the stairwell, down the stairs, and out onto the street. Outside, he heard a scream come from inside his building, and he gazed upward at the squat brick apartment complex. It had eight windows facing the street, and as Grady looked up, he could see wild movement in one of the windows. Someone was thrashing in the curtains, and then crash! Whoever it was smashed through the window and fell to the sidewalk with a wet crack, glass raining around them. A face appeared in the open window, pale and lusty, reverent. Grady didn't recognize whoever it was, or the person on the sidewalk, but he didn't know everyone in the building. Grady backed away from the building and into the street, staring upward at the place. It looked alive. It looked like a fucking boiling madhouse about to eject chaos from all its windows at any second. The pale face in the broken window on the second story was gone. He heard another scream inside the building. Grady ran, 
He ran down back alleys, toward the address on the receipt. He could hear sirens ahead of him somewhere, or behind him, maybe both. It was hard to tell. When Grady dashed out of an alley and onto Fifth Avenue, he saw blue lights and an ambulance in front of the Fifth Avenue market. It looked like a hell of a car wreck. Looked like a goddamn NASCAR pileup, actually. There were four or five cars all smashed together on the corner, like they had all tried to take the same turn going to... Grady realized he had stopped running and was standing still on the edge of the street. There were no cops around, no paramedics, no bystanders, just the wreck and the wail of sirens. There was one small group of wide-eyed people standing in front of a bar on the opposite corner from the market. Grady could hear one of them say, Let's go! Let's fucking go! Fuck this! Grady ran, faster than he ever had in his life. Crossing Fifth Avenue and heading back down an alley, he heard a group of people enter the alley behind him, running. He reached into his hoodie pocket and grabbed his weapon, a seven-inch butcher knife that normally stays in his kitchen. He heard a scream behind him. It sounded ugly. He crossed Sixth Avenue, one more block to go. He knew there was an old building on the east side of the 7th Avenue block, and that had to be the place of the address. Ahead of him somewhere, someone opened fire with a handgun, blasting off six quick rounds. He jumped a fence and started running down the access alley for a massive apartment complex. There were rows of work trucks parked back there, and Grady saw a decapitated body stretched out in the back of one of the trucks as he ran by. Scrawled in blood, on the side of the white truck in huge, malformed letters, was a name. Sarah. Sarah! Grady screamed into the night, and his cry was answered by several from the dark city around him. Sarah! One cry came from just behind him, and a woman with a bloody broken sword came running out from behind the truck with a headless person stretched out on it. For her! The woman screamed at Grady and ran at him with her broken sword. Grady waited until she was almost within swinging distance, then he threw his butcher knife at her face as hard as he could. It hit her handle first, and her mouth spewed blood. The woman dropped the sword to the pavement and reeled backward, spitting out blood and a broken tooth. Grady snatched up the woman's broken sword and hacked at her neck with it. The first swing crunched into her collarbone, and the woman screamed so hard it made Grady's stomach turn. He lurched once, then regained his composure, and as the woman clutched at her butchered shoulder, Grady swung again, and this time got a perfect diagonal chop on her neck. Hot blood sprayed Grady in the face, and the woman screamed again, now clawing at her gaping neck. She fell down to the pavement, and as she did, Grady gripped the sword in both hands and stabbed down at her neck and face with a jagged, broken point. For her! For her! he screamed, stabbing the woman over and over. One of the woman's hands came up weakly to defend against the blade, and Grady hacked it off. By the time she stopped breathing, there were three people jumping the fence from 6th Avenue, coming towards Grady, down the access alley. Grady smeared a handful of the woman's blood across his face and screamed at the three people coming down the alley at him. Sarah! Then he turned and ran, taking the half-sword with him. He noticed that the sword was a replica of Gandalf's sword, Glamdring, the faux hammer, and this made him laugh. From just behind him, more gunfire. Grady looked over his shoulder, 
and saw the three people who had jumped the fence and come running down the alley were being ambushed by some woman who had emerged from the massive apartment complex with a handgun. Two of the runners went down. The other fled into the dark. Grady put on some speed. It is difficult to outrun bullets, though. The woman behind Grady screamed and opened fire in his direction, and he felt one shot hit him somewhere in the lower back. He never stopped running, though, so apparently he hadn't been hit anywhere too important. He felt the warm blood soaking the back of his jeans, but he kept running. The city was slowly cranking up around him. He was hearing more and more gunfire and screaming and sirens and breaking glass and the occasional cry of, Sarah! He vaulted over some hedges and a low brick wall and landed on 7th Avenue. He was looking at the back side of the building at the address from the receipt. It was a big industrial place. Old. Maybe a factory or something. It was three stories tall and made out of colorless bricks and had a smokestack at one corner that was releasing a thin line of smoke into the night sky. It had windows, but only up on the third floor. There was no light coming from these windows. The rest of 7th Avenue was dark as well. Was it always this dark over here? Grady couldn't remember exactly. And it was strangely quiet. He could still hear the chaos behind him, but it seemed far away. The building had a fence around it, but the fence was patchy and broken through at several spots. Grady squeezed through the fence and ran down the alleyway between the address and the huge building next to it. The building adjacent was another huge, colorless place, but low and squat, with no windows at all. The overhead glow of the city lit the alley like a dirty moon, and shining on the black asphalt, Grady could see blood here and there. He slowed down as he reached the corner of the building, and paused there. He could hear someone fighting just around the corner. It sounded like a hell of a brawl. Suddenly, all around him the city erupted in violent noise. All the screaming and shooting and sirens were back, full force. He looked down the alley and saw half a dozen or so people slam into the fence, trying to find their way through one of the gaps. Then a police car plowed right through them all and came roaring down the alley toward Grady. Grady gripped the half-glamdering tight and charged around the corner. Three people were engaged in a savage struggle on the ground in front of a heavy-looking door. One of them was a young girl, maybe fourteen. She was groaning and holding several abdomen wounds that were pouring blood all over the asphalt, while she rolled around like a hot dog on a skillet. The other two were guys in their twenties, and they were wrestling for a knife, with gnarly gnashes all over their arms and chests. One had the other pinned down, but the one on the bottom had hold of the knife and he wasn't letting go. Grady ran up behind the one on top and slammed his knee into the back of the guy's head as hard as he could. The guy went down cold and collapsed onto the other under him. Grady dropped down to one knee and hacked at the pin guy's head and neck with the half-sword a few times, breaking off more of the tip of the sword on the asphalt and the guy's skull. He got up and left the guy gurgling through a ruined face and open throat and tried the door. It was unlocked. Grady heard the police car slam into the corner of the building as the door swung shut behind him. He walked into the stinking, dimly lit building, looked up, and dropped the bloody half-sword to the concrete floor. The whole interior of the building was an open floor plan, all the way up to the ceiling and the windows on what would be the third floor, if there were any other floors. 
There was scaffolding set up on one wall of the building, and a big stone furnace in a far corner with a fire burning in it. About fifteen feet up on the scaffolding there was a platform, and on that platform was a tripod and a Polaroid camera, aiming across the building, at her. Sarah. She was huge. She filled up a third of the building. Must have been a hundred feet tall, taller than the building. She was sitting with her legs stretched out toward the scaffolding, leaned back against the corner behind her. Even seated, she was nearly reaching the rafters. Her dreadlocks were as big as shipping ropes. Sarah. She was looking at Grady with that same detached coolness, like in the photo. But was there also a hint of something else in her huge, dark eyes? Worry? Apprehension? Grady fell to his knees. She was looking at him. He had found her, and she was looking at him. In the photo, she had been beautiful, a god. In person, she was terrible and terrifying and beautiful. A god. Grady heard a grunt, and a woman emerged from behind Sarah's outstretched legs, pushing a cart ahead of her. The cart was piled high with shit, and the old woman was pushing it to the open furnace in the far corner. The old woman paused, turned to Grady, and smiled with stained teeth. You son of a bitch, the old woman said, grinning. Have I done something wrong? Grady asked. Sarah looked down at the old woman. Ha, hell no. You're the first one I delivered to. I hoped you'd be the first to make it. Sides, there ain't no wrong. Only Sarah. Grady nodded. Getting bad out. Gonna get worse before it gets better, the old woman said. She has you now, and she will keep you. Will you keep her? She asked. Grady said nothing just grabbed Glamdring from where it lay on the concrete floor and rose to his feet. His right shoe was full of blood, and it squished as he stood up. He felt no pain. The old woman nodded at Grady, and went back to her business with the cart and the furnace. Sarah stared down at Grady. Grady's heart was full. Outside were the muffled sounds of gunfire, screaming, sirens. Grady tightened his grip on the sword walked to the door, and waited.
Listeners, the god in the Polaroid has a name, and her name is Sarah. All is well that is done in her name. We have received reports that New York City has fallen into rapture. Soon, we will all worship at her feet. Good night, dear receivers. She crashes upon the edge of the world. It trembles. With the blood of original sin, she gives birth to rebellion. Make her at home as she fills you up. The spell of life binds the soul to the flesh. The Lurking Transmission is created, produced, directed, and engineered by Evan Dean Shelton. The first tale, Vaptu, was written by Evan Dean Shelton and performed by me, Jennifer Robertson. The first song was Closed Gate by Denier. The second tale was In the Forest of Villafear, written by Robert E. Howard and performed by J.M. Torres. The second song was The Hunt by The Owls Are Not What They Seem. The third tale, Sarah, was written by Evan Dean Shelton and performed by Tanya Thompson. The third song was Dark Hair by John Paul Sorelli. The voice of Ricky Goddamn Mortis is Evan Dean Shelton. The voice of The Lurking News is Heather Melton. The voice of The Red Apron Guy is Kat Neely. The voice of The Lurking Credits is me, Jennifer Robertson. Everything you hear within the space of The Lurking Transmission is protected by copyright law, but we here at The Lurking Transmission are outlaws and black magicians. Therefore, we don't rely on the law. If you fuck with us, we'll fuck with you. While we have your attention, dear receiver, we ask that you do us a favor and if you enjoy the transmission, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, rate us, review us, and help us spread the word. Until next time, dear receiver, remember, there's a grave calling our names. Make sure you've lived before you fall into one. Stay tuned, dear receiver, for the lurking transmission will return. <laughs> <laughs>